bringing Seattle to the world and the world to Seattle. I'm your host, Lori Ness, a soldier on the front line of the mainstream. You can listen to this and other shows at northwestprime.com and be sure to stay with Seattle Wave Radio 24-7-365 for more great music and interviews. We're starting a movement of kindness and we want you to join us. Let's get this show started. My guest today, Patrick Few, is a multiple James Beard award-winning restaurant critic for Los Angeles Magazine, and you know how we love our James Beard award winners here, and he also is an author. I believe this is his third book. It's a fascinating novel for foodies, and it's coming out June 21st. It's called Finding the, Lost, or Finding the Flavors We Lost, from bread to bourbon. We love bourbon, and, and of course, we love bread. How Artisans Reclaimed American Food, and I absolutely love this book. I am a foodie, um, not at the level you are, Patrick, but I'm thrilled to have you on. So thanks for coming. Well, thank you, Laurie. Lovely to be here with you. How did this concept, Artesian food and finding these lost flavors, how did it become a book? Well, I started seeing the the you know the, I'm, a, I'm a working restaurant critic, and about ten years ago, I started seeing this word artisanal art, uh, and artisan all, all over the place, and I started saying to myself, well, what does it mean? Is it just a buzzword like um, like fusion cuisine was you know fifteen years ago? And um, I'm I'm a fairly cynical person when it comes to to marketing terms, and I want to know what's behind them, and so. I wanted to eventually to go up river and see well what's behind this great butter that's arriving at the table, this great bread, these 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 fantastic beers in my local tap room, um, uh, you know this bacon that it's like wow I've, I've never tasted bacon until I tasted this, and so I decided to 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 write a book about it. Well, you know, why I'm so excited about it, because I think a lot of people like me, we kind of grew up in the 70s and 80s where food had become uh, a lot easier. So I, I grew up, my mother came from a generation where poor people cooked, but she seemed liberated. So we ate things out of a can, out of the freezer, something you could microwave, and she really right. felt like that was a revolution. And yeah. we lost in that everything was so watered down, everything tasted the same. I actually didn't even have cheese unless it wasn't a wrapper or a can. I think until I was like 19 <laughs> or something like that. Uh, and so but, I'd love to see this movement come back. Yeah, Laurie, you've really touched on a key part of the book because we did once used to eat very well. You know, 100 years ago, people were pickling and brewing, making their own beer, curing their own meat, um, churning butter. The, the flavors were incredible. It was also an awful lot of work. And so when you say your mother felt liberated, that's a key point. There was a liberation to to an easier way of eating. Unfortunately, that easier way of eating sort of became the way of eating, and and food started to come from who knows where and sort of the, the 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 ties to tradition or to place were were broken, and so yes, a generation came in the 60s and 70s said, you know, there must be more to food than five can casserole, 
and uh, let's see if we can rediscover mm-hmm. it. And, and sort of, so it's really not a knock on the generation that did find ease in 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 in, in sort of mass market foods, but uh, so I don't want to knock them. But I but I think there's a real validity to, to the generation that said, well, let's go back to our own traditions and see if if some of those still can exist in today's world. Absolutely. You know, it's really about balance. A hundred years ago, that was the only way that they could do it, and they didn't think they were really um, breaking food norms and, and, and inventing something new at that time when they were out there churning butter and, you know, killing chickens <laughs> and making right. cheese and, and that type of thing. So it really is kind of a full circle moment. Yes, and you know, I try to be realistic in this book because, for instance, home canning—it's um, a wonderful uh, tradition that has been reinvented, and people are putting up jams and preserving vegetables now. But not so long ago, um, I mean, I cite uh, this farm woman in, in the Texas Hill Country who writes in a, in, a, in an oral history. You know, we would be—it's the hottest time of the year. Uh, August and September, when all the produce is coming in, there was no air conditioning. You were you were standing over boiling water that was boiling on a on a on a wood fireplace in a room that was already a hundred degrees from temperature. Uh, she she said we would run out of the house to cool ourselves off before we had to run back in to to take the jams and the preserves out of the water baths and. So I, I wanted really to establish it was very hard, <laughs> you know. There, there right. was a, there was a there, there was a great if you could open a can and that 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 you could buy that, pre, you know, prevented you from having to do that kind of hardship. Who's to say, oh, you shouldn't do that? It it was incredibly hard to to do that kind of stuff. Now, so that's an artisanal craft. Now. Today we have things like artisanal Doritos, you know. So you say, well, how did we get? How, is there any validity to a movement where there's artisanal Doritos? And of course, so I try to strike the balance in the book: realistic on one hand, historical on another, and and you know, uh, mis, uh, mistrustful, let's say, of of the term where it's where it's abused. Sure, sure. Well, that's that's why this book, it really reads like a novel. I mean, I encourage people to buy it for a summer vacation read, for a beach read. I mean, there's there's so many of us now who are watching these food shows, uh, MasterChef, all those types of things. And so to have a book or a novel that we can read for where you, you've taken um, stories of, of people who are really at the, the – rebirth of this movement and you tell their stories and you take us through their journey and, and kind of how they started down in this counterculture movement years ago of, of learning cheese making and, and learning right. butter and, 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 we've, and we've seen it locally with wines and, and breweries and, and, and everything kind of this back to the land movement and, and people, just general people are even developing a level of self-sufficiency with and there's more people, I think, now than, than maybe in the past 30 years who have home gardens, who have chicken yes. coops now. We see urban chicken coops. So you really walk us through kind of how this happened before our eyes. But, but there were just some really great people who started this out, and you take us yes. through their stories. Um, and, and, and they were kind of reluctant 
artesians maybe. <laughs> well, I think that was uh, you've hit on a key point because I think the interest one of one of the interesting things is everybody who decided to be an artisan was essentially starting from 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 zero. There, there there was no tradition that they could tap into. There was no guild system like in Europe. There was there weren't places you could just get an apprenticeship with. You 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 know earth catalog or or the or or some countercultural magazine and figured out how to how to make something so it really took drive motivation and and yes i i have tried to tell the book through the eyes of the artisans as they were experiencing their own learning because i didn't want to be this author speaking from this vast distance and sort of holding forth um i wanted to to say it each artisan is on their own journey, and I figured if I could if I could give a, a realistic idea of, of that journey, the hardships and the triumphs, I would really get to that. So, for instance, I tell one the story of one cheesemaker in in mid seventies, who was a back to the lander in Michigan, and her husband, as a surprise, gave her a cow on their wedding day, and the farmer arrived with the cow, and the cow had never been milked. And here she is, uh, uh, you know, a college-educated, back-to-the-land hippie. And she says, oh, my God, here's a cow. I have to milk it. Uh, uh, then I have to figure out what to do with the milk. And, and it's sort of the, that's sort of the start of a journey. Um, and, of course, that each is, food. Uh, a, yeah. Go ahead. That's just such a funny story because she, I, I don't know if people really picked up on that. She received a cow as a gift on her wedding day. Okay, so that's really funny to me because she <laughs> didn't want a cow, but she just didn't really know she wanted it as a wedding gift. So that, that there's all these little funny things, and, and a lot of uh, I, I know as, as women, and I'm sure men have the same stories, but I can only talk from a women's perspective. A lot of times we'll say, "Oh my gosh, you know, I'd really like to get that new vacuum or something," and then it turns up like as our birthday or Christmas or something present. We're like. Well, we really didn't want it for that, but so I could totally relate to her with that cow. It's like, well, I wanted a cow, yeah, and then, like you said, good... she had to learn what to do with this cow. Yeah, she. Um... Yes, she she may have mentioned, wouldn't it be nice to have a, a cow? But her husband interpreted that as a wedding gift. Um, that's, right. a, that's a funny point. <laughs> she may have been <laughs> not what she expected. It certainly paints the exactly. picture of an era when people would give cows. But each baker, each cheesemaker, each brewer, um, they were on that journey. Just start from zero. I think what's, what's really important in, in these food artisans is they were driven by the idea of excellence. So it's, it's, you, you make bread once, and then you sort of analyze it, and you say, okay, how can it be better? And then you make bread twice, and you say, okay, how can it be better? And then you make bread 100 times, and then you say, okay, how can I make this amount? How can I, make, how can I double, triple, quadruple this amount of bread and make sure it stays just as good as this loaf? And so this, this constant drive of excellence behind the artisanal movement. Well, and it really also taps into their independent spirit to really be able to, they started out of this um, becoming small businesses. They started having an abundance. Her cow was producing more milk than than what she could even handle. So so a, a little business starts to form out of that. And they they become these independent 
producers almost reluctantly. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's really that's really the key point in I think in today's artisanal movement because it started out very small by necessity. People just had to figure out how to make a small amount, but then they got very good at it, and then people liked it, and yes, it became a business. And so there's this question sort of hanging over the movement today is how big can you grow and still be called an artisan and um, uh, come down firmly on the side of you, if you can grow, grow, because to be an artisan has always meant independence. And it meant being independent long before it meant being small. You know, the 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 coppersmith in colonial America, uh, the the homestead wife who was making a bit of butter she could sell at market in, in, in 1850. These were attempts at some form of independence. So that's part of the tradition also. And... Um, and yes, you're right. The, the artisanal business today—they're they're creating jobs, opportunities, uh, careers for for all sorts of people. And you know, as the economy changes and jobs disappear, I think any business that can offer careers and trajectories for people is fantastic. So if 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 that's about jam making, bread baking, baking curing, uh, or, or or the whole distilling culture that's going on now, um, I think that's that's not to be rejected. That's to be embraced as part of what an artisan is. And how are they accomplishing, Patrick, producing more of a mass quantity but yet keeping the integrity of the flavor of the product? Because that's really where it's at. And that's really, you know, you're talking about finding these lost flavors. When you eat good, and, 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 and when I mean good, I mean local things that haven't been trucked all over. But when you are eating something that's come very freshly from the ground to your plate, however that is from your own backyard or you go to a restaurant that's farm to table, there's nothing like those flavors. Those things yes. just explode in your mouth. And you're thinking, where have I been? It's like hearing music for the first time. And how do they keep that integrity with that flavor quality if they go on a more mass market level? Right. Can it be well, done? Each business, uh, it, it can be done. It can also be it can also be done wrong, and then uh, and then it's no longer artisanal. Um, I think uh, one of the th- one of the uh, decisions they have to make is. If it takes time, don't pencil out the time. So bread, a naturally leavened loaf of bread might take 24-hour fermentation. Um, You can also make commercial bread in 30 minutes from flour, from mixing bowl to shrink wrapping. So you have to make the commitment. I'm, I'm going to give this the time that flavor requires to develop. And, um, for instance, bakeries, there are many bakeries today that are growing and making more bread, but they're not conceding the key decision of time. So they're not going to say, oh, well, we'll make it cheaper, but we'll just call it artisanal. If it takes 24-hour fermentation, then 24 hours it is. We can just make more of that bread that we give that time to. Um, uh, cheese, cheese makers, they will sometimes, uh, often, um, uh, 
start out perfecting one cheese and getting a reputation for one cheese, but then decide to make two or three other cheeses, each one at the same fantastic level. So that gives them more of a, a, essentially more things to sell at market, a bigger, bigger presence. Um, they're not dropping the quality, they're just expanding the, the amount of cheeses they make. Um, with with breweries, it gets tricky because the whole craft brew, brew movement today is is trying to define what is a craft brewer. Um, at the moment, the definition of a craft brewer is if you're not making more than 6 million barrels a year. It sounds like a lot, but in the eyes of mega, mega brewers, that's a tiny amount. So um, I'm... I still think you can make more than that amount of beer and be a craft brewery, but the the Brewers Association has decided on that amount. So it's very um, um, sometimes there's strict definitions like for craft brewery, and sometimes like the term small batch it really means nothing. It's 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 uh, you know it's, it's it's like what Jerry Seinfeld used to call about the the limited edition car you know it's a, it's limited to how many they can sell so you have to you, you can't just take this you, you can't you can't small batch means nothing but it, it kind of has a, a lyrical poetic quality this is oh it's small batch so it must be good so i think we exactly. as consumers we have we have to remain kind of wise to 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 these kind of word games but i think craft um it can grow and it can grow with the integrity of the artisanal movement had this had would it had the the success that it had had chefs not got on board with this and kind of legitimized the movement and started going out to these artesian farmers and well, and craft people and and bringing that into the restaurants Oh no! I think chefs played a huge role in in, in validating this because, um, first of all, they're they're looked up to for their knowledge and taste, um, and so and secondly, because they can buy in larger, far larger quantities than the than the average consumer. So, when a chef says, when a chef finds some little farmstead cheesemaker and buys, you know, five wheels of cheese, that's that's just a huge endorsement of that cheesemaker who otherwise is selling tiny wedges at the farmer's market, you know, and might take them weeks to sell five wheels of cheese. So between the, the, the endorsement the chef is giving by purchasing and the, and the, and the amount they can purchase, it made a huge difference, difference for, for uh, artisans. And you know, I, I I can't tell you the amount of people who said to me, oh, when 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 you know a chef came and started buying my bread, buying my cheese, buying my butter, you know, home cultured butter, um, and 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 even produce. You know, for farmers, uh, I I follow the history of one particular chef, uh, Jean Louis Paladin of Washington D.C., who's a sort of cult figure in the in the in in the food world of the 70s and 80s. Um, and he, he would find that farmstead cheese or that, you know, he'd stop on the side of the road and buy his corn. Uh, he'd buy the soft shell crab from Maryland. Um, he started, uh, the, the, what's now common on menus, diver scallops. You know, we see diver scallops on menus. What does it mean? 
it means a diver went down and got the scallop. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, he's, he wanted it so fresh. He didn't want it brought up slowly in a net, sitting on the boat for half a day. He, he sent the divers down, got the scallops, put it on ice, and got it to his restaurant as soon as possible. So when we see something like diver scallop, it really means something. Well, that, that's interesting that you would say scallops because I have had kind of this love-hate relationship with scallops. I had not really had good ones for a long time, and I kind of just thought of them as sort of the tofu of the seafood uh, world because they kind of <laughs> took on that flavor. But once I had some good scallops, it, they just melt in your mouth, and they, they actually do have flavor. And I, I became a fan of scallops. It, it, it really did take me getting – not buying a box at Costco or something like that, but, you know, actually yeah. going to somebody who had fresh scallops and, and being able to see. Again, that flavor comes – flavor is, yes. is really what, what you're paying for. That's really the experience, right? I mean, that's, yes, it, that's why we sit down. Yes, exactly. That's the, 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 the flavor – the flavor is the reason that we're we're interested, that we're passionate about it. I mean, with scallops, you don't want to overcook them. That's the secret with scallops. And um, I think it's one of those cases where buying few, fewer of a higher quality makes all the difference. So, you know, mm -hmm. if you were to, like, go into to a Japanese market, for instance, they're known for selling excellent scallops, and just buying fewer but and make sure you don't overcook them and uh, it's a it's actually a fantastic ingredient yeah um but this book is all about celebrating that form of of of, of flavor and um it's really um i think the movement has established our own american traditions uh sort of reestablished them uh, as a as a thing we should really be proud of because for a long time if it didn't come from Europe, how could we? How could it possibly be good if it if it wasn't imported? You know, uh, thirty right, years ago, right. the, the 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 word, the magic word, wasn't artisanal. It was imported. So mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. we've really gotten away from that. Now we can, if 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 there's something good in French cuisine or or Italian cooking, uh, we can appreciate it, but we don't uh, consider that the. Um, you know the definite uh, 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 highest point of quality. Uh, we, I think we've realized now that American food traditions are are fantastic. Absolutely, and and it was so important on imported. They put it on the label, and this is imported butter. This is imported cheese. This is or whatever. Uh, and, and so you know, here we have this wonderful, huge country that's so diverse, and 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 so many immigrants from all over. And we were we couldn't we weren't tapping into those roots here. We were you know importing it in like like you were saying, and and thinking that that was a sign of quality when really yeah. we had quality. Right here, and yes, and you know, for, if, for for instance, the the wine world. I covered the wine world extensively in the book. In the uh, an Argon winemaker, uh, Ken Wright, he he makes Pinot Noir, and he also makes wine in Walla Walla. Um, so he's he's in Washington State, um, and his idea of trying to find an expressive uh, to, to wine to express a place, which sounds kind of magical and mystical and how does wine express a place and 
you know, all things in food and wine and beer, it's all very concrete. And um, I spent quite a bit of time with him in the Willamette Valley, walking his vineyards, <laughs> trying to understand how his idea, you know, the French have this word, terroir, of how of, how of, of, of wine can express the place it comes from. And again, it's very, it's a very American landscape. There, there, there are barns and there are uh, filbert orchards, and you know, there's sloping valleys. And within that sort of traditional American landscape, the, of course, there's vines. And um, and each each slope of hill has a different exposure to the sun. Each slope of hill has different soil. Um, the grapes actually mature in different ways, and they they do ultimately have a different expression of that particular field. And um, mm-hmm. when you taste that in the glass, um, particularly in the Pinot Noir, that kind of smoky, uh, cherry, cherry pit flavor that comes from a great Pinot Noir, um, it's 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 transcendent you know you 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 understand what these people have devoted their lives to um and and for me it's just it's 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 just so inspiring that um uh you know i apart from loving the pinot noir i love what i love the story that it is telling Absolutely. And, of course, we're big Pinot Noir lovers here in the Pacific Northwest because we love it with salmon many times. We eat a lot of salmon up here. Pinot Noir pairs very well with salmon. And mm, yeah, very we well. love Walla Walla. Yeah. And uh, we love Walla Walla. And I was just in Walla Walla uh, <laughs> recently at a winery. And, and there is something. that There was a dinner. It was set up in the vineyard. And we were sitting amongst the Syrah vines at that point. And yeah. it was spring barrel. And, and there was something really magical. And I, I've been out to vineyards before when, you know, the wine uh, maker will take you out. And, you know, and you can take a grape off the vine and, you know, you can – you can taste it before it you know, becomes wine when it's still a grape. And, and, and you're, you are, you're kicking around in that soil, and, and sometimes it's hotter, and sometimes it's colder, and sometimes it's more rainy, and, and all of that. No vintage is the same year to year to year because of what went on no, in that weather. No. And, and it, it, it makes, yeah. it, 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 there, like you said, there's a story really in every bottle of, of the wine. Yeah. And well, when you get out to the winery, I, you can find out some of those stories. <laughs> well, I'll I'll, start, I'll take you behind the scenes in my book because I there's there's a there's a story with this winemaker. I I went I timed a, a visit uh, to up to Oregon for early October, and I thought it would be the key week when he would be picking the grapes because I wanted a scene in the book where he's picking the grapes and transforming it into wine. And so I get there, and I've got uh, almost a week. Um, and he's not picking because he figures the grapes aren't haven't reached that magical point. So day one he doesn't pick, and day two he doesn't pick, and he he just walks around the vineyards tasting the grapes. Day three he doesn't pick, and and, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, I only have so many <laughs> days up here. I need a scene. I you know, the, 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 like a, a selfish writer, start picking so I can see you start and. The, the funny thing is, he didn't pick for my entire stay, and he started the day after I left. And the the beautiful thing was, I I really understood his passion by waiting. 
you know, you know, the Northwest at a certain point in October, it's it can start raining bad, mm-hmm. and if it started mm-hmm. raining bad for his on his grapes, it would ruin his harvest. So he was taking a real risk right. by keeping the grapes on the vine. But he said, I can get more flavor. I can get more flavor, and. For me, that was that. That was the key moment. He's 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 risking it all to get more flavor, and I really understood Absolutely. what a gr- what a great Northwest wine. What's behind a great Northwest wine? Yeah, I I completely agree, and that's what's so wonderful about the book, and especially if you. Almost everyone's a foodie now, to some level, because I see it on social media. I know more about what my acquaintances are eating and drinking on a minute-to-minute level than I ever knew in my whole life combined up to the last yeah. couple of years. And so so we do have this fascination, and we do want to be connected, and we do want to be part. And, and, and I've, I've been there, too. I was just at uh, in on the Big Island of Hawaii, and we went to Merriman's, which is a farm-to-table. Yeah. Peter Merriman's is a chef out there. Mm. And I will tell yeah. you, I have not had a meal. This is not an endorsement for him whatsoever. This is just pure love. That was one of the top five meals I've had in my life, and it was all oh, wow. done from right there. It came in right off of the Big Island in Hawaii. Everything he did. When you talk about butter, the butter was one of the most memorable things. The butter was one of the most. Mm. Mem- I mean, everything was memorable, but the butter and yeah. it was like salted or something. I don't know what he did with it, but uh, <laughs> and it was just you know he, he did things with that I never even had even imagined. And so these things, when you add them up in the experience, um, yes, it, it was a little, you know, a little, it wasn't crazy expensive. It was a little more expensive. But I have told this story over and over to everybody I know. I'll probably never be able to get into Merriman's again uh, <laughs> because it will probably be booked. But it, it just yeah. was so memorable. It was such a wonderful experience. I'm, that was like going to Disneyland for for a food mm. person. When you have one of those top meals, when you have that great wine, you have the butter, the bread, you know everything he's bringing out, the steak, the beef, the, you know the asparagus, whatever he's putting out, it it just does this magical dance in your mouth. And when you yeah. know it, you can you you know you. I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir with you. You know it. It can't it can't be fake. <laughs> Well, you know, I've I've heard of I've heard of Merriman's uh, in, in Hawaii. I, I, I haven't been, but now uh, your description certainly makes me want to go. Um, so thank you for sharing what a, must have been a wonderful experience. Well, it it really was because it, on on the Big Island, Merriman's is kind of in the center of the island, and and that island is really known as more agricultural, not so touristy, which was wonderful. And so they all, all of the cows, all of the beef for all of the islands come from the Big Island. So he's kind of right in the center of that, and he really did a fantastic job. He has one I think in Maui, but I went to the one on the Big Island. It was fantastic. I, I, I want to talk to you, to be, be, or Patrick, before I let you go, about your family and how did you come to be this food critic and have this love affair with food? Was it? Like, I, I kind of talked about my mom and uh, what was your experience, Patrick, at, at home? Well, uh, well um, uh, I was born in Spain. Uh, my, my parents were expatriates who, who lived there. So I I grew up eating a lot of Spanish food, which is you know uh, Spanish omelet or or shelling beans, uh, cocido with with sausage and 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 uh, sort of 
stewed tomatoes and whatnot. Um, I was always writing, and I used to work in restaurants as a cook, and and I would sort of cooking was the way I paid the rent, and writing was what I loved to do. And eventually, I put the two together and decided to make uh, uh, writing about food a, a career. So um, I've been I've been lucky enough to get my foot in the door and um and you know I've, uh, I've become a restaurant critic and now of course as a de- development of, of restaurant criticism trying to track down the meaning of this great term that uh, we all live around the uh, artisanal food and and, uh, and so um that's how I got into it you dedicated the book to your sister what yeah. was the meaning behind that well, my sister's always been my my biggest supporter, and you know, um, there's that moment in every freelance writer who says, "Can I can can anything come of this?" And uh, um, you know, it's 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 hard to get a byline. There, um, it's, it's tough days for newspapers and magazines. Um, and um, uh, my sister Michaela was sort of an un, un, unstinting sup- uh, supporter. She always said, "You can do it. Go for it." And um, and of course, one's siblings are, you know, along with one's parents, the people one's known all one's life. Um, and um, I'm I'm blessed to have a very positive relationship with my sister. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I completely enjoyed this book. It's going to be a gift that I give out to people here this oh, summer, especially my, my, my friends who, who love food just as I do, because it really is just you, you, you can tell your passion on every page when, when we're reading through it. We're kind of living these experiences with you. And, and mm. for all of us who have come from these many different worlds where we've heard the stories or gone to our grandmothers and, and had yeah. my, my family's from the South. So I remember my grandmother making biscuits and gravy mm. and, and yeah. things that weren't happening really in, in my household on a regular basis. And, and, yeah. and then kind of going through this fast food generation and then kind of turning around and, 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 and rediscovering it. I mean, it's, it's really for so many people, and I, I think that we can lose ourselves, and I really lost myself down memory lane. Um, mm. Because isn't that what food is? Food's about memories, right? Yeah, there are a lot of emotions in food, that's for sure. So uh, it's, that, you put it very nicely, Laura. Yeah. Well, the, the the book comes out June 21st. It'll be available Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold. If you don't see it, ask for it. They want to sell you a book. I always say this: um, if if you don't see it, go up there. That's they're in the business to sell you a book. If they don't have it, they will get it for you. Um, right. So and be proactive in that. And don't forget, I'll be at the Book Larder in Seattle on on June 22nd at 6:30. So anybody who wants to hear me read in person should should come to the Book Larder Bookstore in, in, uh, on June 22nd. All right, on June 22nd at 6:30, you will be here in Seattle. We will make sure that we get that out. The book is called Finding the Flavors We Lost from Bread to Bourbon. How Artisans Reclaimed American Food. Patrick, it was really a pleasure. I really have looked forward to this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Laurie, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. You you have a a great day and just continued success and keep writing books like this. Okay.
<laughs> okay. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye, bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Patrick. Bye-bye. All right. The book is called Finding the Flavors We Lost from Bread to Bourbon, How Artisans Reclaimed American Food. It reads like a novel. There are so many wonderful stories in it. It will take you down memory lane. It will take you behind the scenes. You will be part of the movement. It makes a great gift. It's going to be a great read for the beach. It's going to be a great read when you're on vacation. It's actually a fast read. So um, it's, I, I'm sure you could finish this book in a day or two. But it is, it's a lovely, lovely read and really, really well done. Patrick Hugh, his last name is spelled K-U-H. And he's a James Beard Award winner and he knows his stuff. So thanks for joining us today. Support your local artisans and eat some good food. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.